Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we often wonder why we are the way we are. I think as a country, we wonder that. I think as an individual, all of us think, who am I? How did I get this way? Who are we? How did we get this way? We ask everyone who ever joins us, where were you born? We don't care if you're a CEO, a great entertainer, a writer, a caller. Uh, it's always interesting to us, where, where, where were you born? Who were your parents? Who were their parents? Where were they from? It's fascinating. Ancestry, interesting and fascinating. Our guest today has looked to his family history to figure out these questions. Jonathan Puckett spoke with the Wall Street Journal in an article titled Searching Family History, Finding a New Future. He joins us to talk about his research in his own family history and how that helped him better understand himself. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm going to start off just tonight. I do this sometimes. I'm going to start off with the piece because it, the piece drew me into you, so I want to draw the audience in as well. And again, the title is Searching Family History, Finding a New Future. It was in the Wall Street Journal uh, not too long ago. Many of us wonder why we are the way we are and look to our family history for clues. What we find can change our lives, as Jonathan Puckett discovered. When he was a child, Mr. Puckett wasn't quite sure where he belonged. What does that mean? Let's start right there. What, what were you worried about or wondering about? Why didn't you think or why were you wondering about belonging? Okay. Well, um, my family background, uh, well, my immediate family, uh, the family that I knew prior to uh, beginning my research, um, they didn't really have uh, too much education. I grew up in a rural Mississippi area, and uh, I was an honor roll student, straight A's, all, all of this sort of thing. And I uh, read immensely uh, British history, British literature, uh, continues to fascinate me. So I felt uh, a little uh, out of place in my immediate family. Uh, and that's what provoked me to begin um, branching out and uh, finding new, so to speak, new family members uh, who shared my interest. Now, you're thinking to yourself, I live in this place with these people, and I love them, and it's a fine place, but, but right. I'm, so, I'm different. And why am I the way I am? And why British literary history? By the way, I, came, I grew up in Dumont, New Jersey, working-class town. British literary history fascinated me. So did Russian literature. And as a kid, I'm reading Keats and Coleridge and Walt Whitman is, yeah. is inspired, of course, course, by the great lake walkers of, 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 the, of the British uh, literary period. And what did Whitman do? Well, the great American poet would sit by the Brooklyn Bridge and watch life walk by there, too. And so I always wondered, where did this come from? Nobody in my family, nobody. The Italian side didn't do this. The Arabic side didn't do this. So what did you do next? I didn't pursue it. I just went on and did what I did and... I, I just never wondered how I plugged in. I guess I should have, but I didn't. But you did. What was next for you? What What were next steps? What did you do? Yes. Okay. So I think initially, I um, I was not looking for at least consciously uh, uh, that sort of connection, but it grew into um, finding people like me. Uh, it, it began as just a general interest of um, my family's history. Uh, I was raised. Uh, largely by my grandparents, and they kept these family Bibles and uh, photographs and uh, all of these sort of things, and I uh, would look through them. Um, so 
my my uh, interest in genealogy had already peaked, and as I branched out, I started contacting these family members. It started with my maybe my grandparents' first cousins, and then I uh, I would uh, go larger, and uh, I would speak to uh, third and fourth cousins, and then fifth cousins. And um, I eventually added over 30,000 um, individuals to my file. But I met uh, wonderful, wonderful, extraordinary people uh, many, on, on many occasions. And I found that meeting and connecting with those people uh, was the most valuable um, asset in researching uh, my family history. Uh, I found, um, for instance... Uh, an uncle who was adopted out of the family. And um, he progressed, uh, even though he had a difficult childhood, and became an engineer, and he traveled the world. And I, I was able to locate him on the 1940 census, and he had never seen a photograph of his father, and I was able to show him that. And it was just the expression on his face, it was absolutely great. Um and that's what I uh, work towards, uh, showing people uh, things about their So family. this wasn't, uh, for you, this wasn't, let me pop on Ancestry.com, yeah. and this is no disrespect to Ancestry.com, but this was a personal quest, not just for identity, not just for meaning, but for story. And I, in the end, you, I think you kept bumping across, as good, I think really good researchers do, the human stories. Cor- correct. And... Um, I think researching ancestry is great, but you you don't need to stop at just uh, okay. This person was born here and he, he died at this date. Uh, you need to uh, attempt to understand them. It, it, uh, it's like reviving uh, a dead person to some degree. Uh, my third great grandmother, for instance, I, I knew nothing about her. No one really knew anything about her until I found. Uh, what we now know, uh, uh, she died in 1901 in her 20s, and she had two children, and we were unsure of what happened. And I found in her obituary, um, uh, she died in Sheboygan, and uh, she uh, died of heart failure at 26, or around 26, uh, because her husband had left her, and she had to revert to hard manual labor to care for her children. And without um, the steps... Uh, of uh, researching and uh, trying to figure out uh, these people, we don't have a clear understanding of them or, or an appreciation for them. So um, it's, it's gaining an appreciation for other people, uh, different people, uh, different backgrounds. I mean, I just, I'm, a descendant, I'm a descendant of Quakers, uh, Catholics, Protestants, Huguenots, uh, all sorts of people. Uh, you could have one dangerous and really prolific argument with yourself for about a quarter of a century, Jonathan. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Jonathan Bucket, searching family history, finding a new future here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and we're joined by Jonathan Puckett. We continue our conversation. The article in the Wall Street Journal was Searching Family History, Finding a New Future. 
It was all about Jonathan's quest and desire to connect with his own ancestry and his own family. But he wasn't doing it by simply going on a computer and paying for it. Um, he was doing something much more urgent and much more meaningful, and that was looking for the actual connections. Tell us uh, you know, a, a few of the stories that most impacted you, that most surprised you. I spent a lot of weekends just traveling to these uh, relatives' houses. I'd never met them before. I'd, I'd call them on the telephone and tell them how I was related. And <laughs> we'd, we'd talk for a couple months, and eventually I would go visit them and see them. And some of the people I met are really fascinating. Uh, um, I met this one fellow. His name is Dr. Joseph Todd. I, I didn't realize that I had had many people in my family go to college, at least in my immediate family. As I began looking, uh, I found otherwise. But Dr. Todd went to Harvard and is a retired cardiovascular surgeon living uh, out of Cincinnati. And he uh, is a cousin of mine, a double cousin by chance. And we have shared uh, many great conversations. And it's really inspiring to know that someone was able to achieve that in my family uh, because he grew up in Decatur, Mississippi. He went to junior college at East Central Community College. Uh, and then he had this uncle who uh, had operated a trust fund in Yazoo City, Dr. Carl Day, and uh, he was able to uh, attend Harvard. And by the way, as you not only get inspired by this story, you get, a, in a sense, if not a mentor and or friend, you just find another really rich relationship in your life, Jonathan. That's true, and I still talk to Dr. Todd. We've spoken, uh, I guess, um, five or six years now, um, and I speak to many of my family members that I've located, and many of the relationships I formed are truly close and endearing. How did, you, how did your friends and family react to the, the, the commitment? Because in the beginning, you had to look a little crazy to your friends. Like, what's, what's Jonathan doing? But it, I, would, I, would prom, I would bet, and I'm, I'm a betting guy. I love betting. Um, okay. I would bet that it, the longer you did it, the more people who at the beginning thought you were a little odd started to go, hey, what did you learn? And next thing you know, you were probably telling them stories, and they were no longer critics. They were more than likely great fans. That's true. Well, as far as my family goes, they, my immediate family uh, has always been supportive, and they helped me when I you know, planned when I planned my first reunion. I was in eighth grade, so I, I needed some assistance financially, at least, and um, they assisted me. But as far as my school friends and this sort of thing, I I do and I I would speak to them about uh, what I found or um, <laughs> interesting tidbits of not just my family's history, but uh, local history, state history. Uh, the United States history, because when you study genealogy, at least seriously, you're going to learn about uh, your, uh, your country's history or, you know, the history of the, uh, the, the local people or what yeah. have you. You know, I was taking my little girl through a, a, a graveyard here in Oxford, Mississippi. It's a beautiful space. William Faulkner is buried there. And, yeah. and so I, I was just, you know, having her look at the tombstones and the family plots and we noticed that every other family plot had these little, little, tiny, essentially where caskets were. And it just turned out that my little girl made that observation and said, Daddy, what, why are so many little babies buried in, in the cemetery? What happened? Was there a fire? I said, honey, kids used to die. 
Lots yeah. of kids just died. They died at birth. They died right after they were born. There were diseases. And she was just shocked, stunned. And I came home and I read her some of the letters from my, my great aunts and family members. And routinely in those letters, so-and-so's child died. Oh, it was so sad. So, I mean, every single family member had a family member who lost a child at a very young age. That's, that's true. And um, I, I have a story that might relate to that. Uh, in doing my research, I located where the home of my third great-grandfather was located. And I knew that he had several infant children and that uh, tradition, to always, uh, or people had always told me that the children were buried behind that house. So <laughs> I, I'm in the middle of nowhere, Newton County, dirt road, and I'm walking through the woods. <laughs> and but, but but I locate where the house was. The base of the kitchen was still standing, and behind that, I see this row of stones. And uh, that uh, exact number of stones, uh, number of stone correlates with the uh, number of infants that he had. So uh, I think that I located the burial place of his uh, infants. But yeah, and you see a lot of families, uh, particularly uh, agricultural families. Um, 19th century, it will have 11 or 12 children, uh, just because the likelihood of some of those children dying uh, was higher. Yep, higher, and I, and I think that's true, and and I think in, even in cities in the country, you know, the 19th and early 20th centuries, um, this was just very commonplace, and, yep. and it was something families had to deal with, and it's a great way of teaching history uh, and making it damn personal. And let, so, uh, one or two other stories, if you could. <laughs> okay. Have I spoken? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I met this fellow. He is really um, a role model of mine and continues to be one. His name is Dr. Harold Graham. He lives in Decatur. He was, uh, he went to East Central, then he went to USM, and then he, uh, he got a master's and he eventually got a doctorate, but he worked as a superintendent of schools. Um, in Louisiana for some time, and he worked as a school counselor. And this was uh, during the civil rights period, and he faced a lot of, um, oh my goodness, prejudice and uh, all of this. And uh, he he began researching genealogy, and uh, well, we, we connect uh, in the early 70s, and he, he continues to do so. Um, and he, not only does he focus on his family, but he focuses uh, on the history of Newton County families. Um, and he presented with me a lot of uh, techniques that I could use, but it also inspired me to pursue um, a higher means of education and to get in contact with these other family members. He provided me uh, countless phone numbers and hours of assistance. So, so another real mentor was developed, and in the end, this really helped you develop into the adult you are now, Jonathan. It sounds like this is an integral part of your development, maybe more important than your actual formal education. <laughs> it may be, and I've I've learned a lot uh, from my own research about um, how society works, about other people, and how to relate to them, and how to how to speak to them, and. I continue to learn as much as I can. Yeah, I think in the end when you're curious and you want to find out what stories are and you don't have an agenda, you're just going to always learn a lot about yourself because you're going to learn a lot about other people. And other people teach us all the time 
with the example of their lives, Jonathan. Uh, one last question. How has this changed yep. the way you understand yourself? Well, I see myself now as a much more, uh, well, I mean, I'm a single individual, but I'm comprised of many different backgrounds. So I've gained a respect for uh, diverse cultures uh, just because, well, I'm, yeah, I'm European, but I'm also uh, <laughs> uh, Asian a little, uh, which surprised me and uh, Native American, and uh, all of the, I'm, I'm formed of all of these different religions, and you just, you get a respect for, and an understanding for uh, other members of society, and you learn that the, um, you don't, you don't research your family history uh, for, for self-satisfaction, you do it for other people, and the, the true value of researching genealogy is to see the smile on the other person's face, uh, when you find out something for them or when you uh, show them a picture they've never seen or, or um, even uh, when you um, historically locate documents that are uh, important, uh, such as uh, I've located a diary uh, that someone had written during his tenure in the Mexican War, uh, things like that that are historically um important. And, well, you know, in the end, it, it is an act of love to do these kinds of things. And it's an act of service. And in the end, sharing these stories with others. Actually, you, you probably did more to bring your family closer than you could have ever imagined, Jonathan. I, I can only uh, 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 surmise that that was a byproduct of your work. Yeah, oh, I mean, at the family reunions I planned, and um, there were people, first cousins, uh, that I spoke to, um, uh, separately, but they had never seen, they hadn't seen each other um, in 30, 40 years, and they uh, now, I assume, speak with, with each other frequently, and uh, there's more, there's a better connection among my family members. Well, Jonathan, thanks for all you did and have done. Searching family history, finding a new future was the story in the Wall Street Journal. Genealogist, almost a master genealogist, Jonathan Puckett, at a very young age, just needed to find answers to his own family's life that couldn't be answered by anyone else but him and his curiosity and his quest to discover the truth about his own life. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. our American stories and our intrepid young producer Faith is joining me for this segment and you know we were talking she's come on to the the team in the last few months graduated from University of California San Diego and uh, you know we want people of all ages all ethnicities on this show doing the reporting and we needed some young people and so Faith joined us and uh, we were just talking about assignments and what might interest her and you know, something that I'd been thinking about since I'd visited the place was the villages. It's in Florida. It's a gigantic retirement community, 120,000 retirees, 600 rounds or holes of golf, three different squares, 2,200 clubs. And I thought, well, you know, Faith, what about that? Faith, talk about what we're about to listen to. 
So I went and I was able to meet some people from one of the clubs I called. And these people have so much energy, like so much more than me. And that's what you're going to hear about um, this story. You're just going to see this community is just out of this world. You have to like, I didn't realize that I had to see it to believe it. Yep. So that's what. And so Faith got on a plane here from Oxford, Mississippi, flew down to the villages. And well, this is her report. On my first trip to the villages, I spent the majority of my time with one couple in particular, and I absolutely fell in love with them. Their names are Jim and Mary Courtney. They are two of the sweetest people I have ever met. They actually decided to adopt me and started introducing me to their friends as their adopted granddaughter. Our first evening together, they took a picture of me to put on their fridge. So how I came to meet them was kind of crazy. Mary runs a club called Crazy Fun and Games, and as I was looking through the village's calendar, I saw her club met on Mondays at 3 o'clock. So her number was there, and I decided to give her a call to learn more about her club. I don't know where I even picked up the name Crazy Fun and Games, but it was games and fun was the main word in the name. And that's what you saw was the crazy fun and game and thought I had to be pretty crazy and found out I really am. Well, it was catchy when uh, it was an 805 area code that you were calling from. And when you said what you were and what happened. If it hadn't been 805, she never would have answered the phone. I probably wouldn't because the other night I had a, an 813 number and I knew it was a what telemarketer. Would have if that, would have that would have been sad. Mm -hmm. And to learn that you were born in Ventura and we lived in Ventura County. Mary and Jim called me about two hours after I landed in Florida. They were excited to finally get together and meet in person. Mary and Jim are very busy people. And me, being only 21 and them being 83 and 85, a quarter of their age, I was exhausted. I was able to meet a ton of their friends, they picked me up for church, I went to a sketching class with Jim on Saturday morning, and then lunch, and then they took me to the squares, and all these different activities that they had. And I was so tired one afternoon, I had to go home and take a nap in order to recuperate, to keep hanging out with them for the rest of the day. But all in all, I loved every minute of it. And on Friday nights in particular, they go to the Mulberry Recreation Center. Mary goes and plays cards with her friends, and Jim plays ping pong. Jim's regular ping pong buddy was not available, so I subbed in. Jim played ping pong with an ice cream cone in one hand and a paddle in the other. With that, he beat me between six and eight times. Not to mention earlier that day, he had already beaten me in bocce ball. My one consolation being that I won one round of shuffleboard. However, if we continued to play that, he probably would have beaten me in that too. But in between the games where he had been completely destroying me in ping pong, we had some good conversation. He asked me two questions. Faith, why were you created? And what do you want your legacy to be? And I was like, what the? I'm supposed to be asking you the questions. So I answered, but then I asked him the same thing. My legacy? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm 83. And I don't have a lot of time left to change what I've already created as a legacy. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't uh, helped people like I would really like to help. I, I, I like to do that. So I, I would push to 
find areas where I can help people. Uh, we, we had this lady who, at 90, she finally passed away. But Mary had known her, oh golly, so many years. And we got her here in the villages and in assisted living because she was being forgetful. She couldn't remember to take all her pills. <coughs> that was a worthwhile legacy in itself, just to be able to help that little lady. Uh, legacy now? She's, she's gone. God has blessed me and my life so well, it's unbelievable. I, I, I just, and I haven't been all that true to God, I have to admit that. That's a fault of mine, and that's that's terrible. It's unfortunate, but uh, I've, I'm working on that. I, I want to make my life pleasing to God because that's all that's necessary. Along with his legacy and wanting to help others, Jim also shared a story about something else that he wants to resolve in his life. What else can I accomplish in life? <clears throat> well, we've got some separation from our daughter at this point. She had some health problems, pretty severe health problems. And we were so supportive of her with that, and it just didn't seem to materialize into a good relationship with her. I don't, I don't know why. I, I wish I knew. But when she was a youngster, oh gosh, we loved to have that little girl. She was 30 days old when we got her. And then to bring her up till the time she went off to second or third year of college, wow, gone, done. Now it's done and, and don't have any contact at all. She's there in England, away from us, four children, three, she has three grandchildren, which are our three great-grands. And she has uh, chosen to separate her from us. And the kids kind of follow that then. So we're not communicating with any of them at the point. Before she fell in love over there, she, we had a great rapport. It was just so nice. She, she just said no more. We're always continuously providing acknowledgement that we love them. There, there are kids and there are grandkids. But they don't, uh, they don't respond. So... I guess I would work on a legacy to build that relationship again with her and the children, and now grandchildren. That would be kind of the main thing I would be, and so would Mary. We both really want to get back in the relationship. What kind of legacy can I leave for her? <laughs> She's in our will. She'll share as much as our son does, you know. So it's difficult to make contact and, and convince her that, that we really want that relationship back, that we love her, we love her children, and we want to do whatever we can to help out with her. So it's difficult. What can I say? We'll keep trying. But he did share this wonderful story about his granddaughter. Uh, Corinne. What a sweetheart she is. She, she's married, and they live in Arizona. And when we went to California, we were communicating with her. She's always been sweet and, and communicative. Uh, she said uh, she wants to see us. 
And if we would come to Palm Springs, she would come from her home and close to Phoenix in Arizona. Not kind of a halfway. We love it. So we did it. And what a great time we had together. Oh, it was just beautiful. So, and we're still communicating with her. And she's just as sweet. She says she loved it. Her sister, she said that she talked with Corinne, is the one that came to Palm Springs. She said Corinne told her she cried all the way home. That gets me. <clears throat> That's tough. But what a great relationship we had with her. It was so good. And we still communicate now. She, she sends us cards all the time. It, it's nice. It was obvious that family was very important to Jim and Mary. And it warmed my heart that they treated me like family. Mary and Jim were so kind to me. There was one moment, in fact, that Jim's kindness brought tears to my eyes. And then this young lady named Faith comes along and wants to hear about our life and about something that might be beneficial to tell others. Well, I don't know what you'll get from my life. And now this sweet little lady comes in. She's just a kid, but by golly, is she sharp. And she's got to put it all together now. So that's going to be interesting. I want to see the results of what she puts together when she does. Faith is a sweetheart I will remember the rest of my life. And we hope we can be together in the future. You can make me cry. <laughs> but, uh, you're a real pleasure. You really are. Just taking time out to listen. Golly, you're different. Most people like to talk. You're willing to listen. I know you like to talk, too, but uh, I bet if I talked with your mother and your dad, they'd say, yeah, she's a talker. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and your brothers and sisters. But uh, you're a sweet lady. Appreciate you. I appreciate you, too. We'll see more of you. And you will. Faith, thanks for taking the time to go down to the villages, and I think we're going to be hearing more from Jim and Mary. And uh, we love doing these kinds of stories here in Our American Stories. Intergenerational stories may be the most profound. And, well, you may be moving into the villages at the end of this all, Faith. This is Our American Stories. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Keep up the good work. And this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about music, sports, love, death, business, and every aspect of American life. And one of our favorite topics, if you've been listening, is fatherhood and how the presence of a father or the lack thereof shapes the lives of children. We brought you Joel Reese's Chicago Magazine story about his father losing his job as a teacher and the respect he had for his father's daring to become an entrepreneur and the trying moment in his life to provide for their families. And on the other end of the spectrum, we brought you Leslie Leyland Field's story, Forgiving My Worthless Father. And today, we're fortunate to be joined by a leader in the movement to reinvigorate fatherhood, David Hirsch, a private wealth manager at UBS, 
who in his spare time founded the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative, a second nonprofit called 21st Century Dads, and the author of a book with the same title. And David, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Lee, for the opportunity. You bet. And David, you know, we just did and finished a, a piece on James Dean. And, and for anybody listening, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and take a look. You know, James Dean, we learned from Martin Balsam and other actors, had lost his dad. And his dad had abandoned him, basically. And his mother had died. And James Dean's search always and his quest was for love. And it was because that dad had just decided to park him in a, in a home with his relatives and his aunts and uncles and never, ever pay attention to him or visit him. And so, David, your involvement in promoting fatherhood comes from a personal space. I want to play you a clip of a talk you gave at a TEDx <laughs> forum in Barrington, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Let's take a listen. I was six years old when my parents divorced. I didn't understand why my dad moved out, remarried, and became a dad to someone else's kids. The next seven years were somewhat traumatic. I remember the police being involved with domestic disputes, being dragged down to the courts at the Daily Center regarding child support and custody issues, uh, living with my grandparents, uh, as well as going to different schools. I give my mom a lot of credit for raising me and my younger brother uh, on her own as a Chicago public school teacher. It's one of the reasons that I have so much respect for single moms. I share this story, this personal story, which I've never really spoken about before, not for pity, but to emphasize the point that father absence isn't some abstraction. It's not just an inner city issue. It's real, and its impact can be generational. In fact, father absence knows no gender, geographic, or socioeconomic boundaries. It exists in urban, suburban, and rural communities across America and around the world. And it's so true. Talk about the impact uh, of that on you, that your father just being absent in your life, David. Talk about that if you could. Yeah, well, let me start out by saying, um, and I hope it's not on a Debbie Downer note, but my mom, that single mom who raised me and my younger brother as a Chicago public school teacher, uh, passed away about three weeks ago. I'm sorry to hear that. And it was after a very brief illness, and um, it really hit home. You know, the role that she played and the unconditional love that she provided me and my younger brother and the sacrifices that she made. And um, the way I used to tell the story, uh, going back uh, 20 years ago, when I became a father for the fifth time, and my kids are now 20 to 27 years old, um, was that the glass is half full, right? That's just my personality. And whenever anybody would ask, I would always just make reference to my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, my mom's dad, and the role, the important role that he played in my life. And uh, what motivated me to start the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative 20 years ago was the strong feeling that I didn't want to pass the baggage of father absence down to my kids like I did with me and my dad, and I witnessed that my dad had passed down to him, and it really was motivating, right? Um, And I wasn't able to talk about it years ago, but I feel more comfortable talking about it now. What motivated me wasn't the intellectual aspect of learning that there was some 24 million kids growing up in father-absent homes, but rather the fear that I had, right, of not having a close relationship with my kids and wanting to do everything I could 
to break that cycle of father absence. And did you did you worry like some of my friends who struggle with alcohol? Was there a part of you, uh, David, that worried? Is this a gene that I that gets passed down? Was there that was not a curse, so to speak, but just was it a worry of yours on some level? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you, you sort of wonder, you know, am I going to fall into that same trap? By the way, there is alcoholism in my family. Uh, I don't think you were asking about that, but you were comparing it to alcoholism, which is, you know, something that, you know, you wonder if I've got that, right? If I've, am I going to trip myself up here inadvertently? And for me, um, I live with my kids, totally committed to their well-being, um, but I could feel that with what was going on in my life, uh, with the success of my career, and then I had the benefit of doing this uh, three-year fellowship with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, where I dedicated three months a year for three years or nine months in total, um, that, you know, my, my life was going really well, right? Um, career's going well. I'm having the fellowship experience. Uh, during those three years, we went from having three kids to five kids. My family is growing by leaps and bounds. But uh, I felt like I wasn't uh, focused like I could or should be on being a dad. And it was that realization at age 36, after the fellowship was winding down, that I needed to rededicate myself. That's when I started looking for fatherhood resources, stumbled across these statistics about the 24 million kids growing up in father absent homes, and then it all sort of came together, and it just felt like the right thing to do. Well, when we come back, David, we're going to dig into a mentor of yours or the father figure in your life, and that's your grandfather, Sam. And we're then going to talk about, well, all the work you've been doing since, and for all the men listening out there, look, it's a worry of all of us as we dig into our careers Are we being the men we can be at home? And that dynamic tug between being an earner, being a provider uh, materially, and being a provider spiritually and having a presence in our homes. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Fathers and sons, David Hirsch, a remarkable story, a story about fatherhood and a commitment to it that I think defies almost all logic. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with David Hirsch, and he's the founder of the Illinois Father Initiative, 21st Century Dads, and the author of a book with the same title, and David, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. You bet. I wanted to just take a step backwards and talk about your grandfather, Sam, before we then project back forward into the story. Talk about him, and talk about father figures in, in general. Well, I was very fortunate to have um, a father figure with my grandfather, Sam Solomon, my mom's dad. And while I knew that my dad wasn't in the picture, um, I didn't realize I was missing anything because my grandfather was always there. In fact, we lived with him when I went to second grade, when things were sort of 
a little bit, uh, discombobulated. And uh, he was already retired. Uh, by the time you know, I was a young person, I could remember you know, my first memories of him. And he was a pharmacist. He and his brother owned pharmacies here in Chicago uh, in the name of Solomon Drugs. And uh, he would volunteer five days a week um, as a volunteer pharmacist and did for twice as long as he was a worker as a pharmacist, so like 40-plus years. So um, all I ever knew about my grandfather from a work perspective was that he was very dedicated to helping people and serving others. So it wasn't so much him telling me that I should serve other people, but by his example that I learned that. And I got to know him as an adult. Uh, he died uh, when I was 40 in 2001. And I was very fortunate to have him play a central role in my life. So I give a lot of credit to the values that I have and the commitment to family that I witnessed that he had. So that's the short of it. And you talked a bit about where we picked off the story last, the the fear you had of, of not being a present dad. And you bumped across as you were looking at literature and statistics. I mean, you came across the stark realities of the wound of fatherlessness. And again, not just with fa- with sons. We're going to dig into how not having a father impacts daughters too. But talk about Dr. Ken Canfield and his work, if you can, David. Yep. So when I was looking for fatherhood resources, um, I was introduced to Dr. Canfield in Kansas City. And I was really like in awe that there'd be 24 million kids growing up in father absent homes. I learned that kids from father absent homes are four times more likely to grow up in poverty, nine times more likely to drop out of high school. The incident of drug and alcohol abuse is much higher. Crime and incarceration is much higher. Teen pregnancy and suicide is much higher. And I'm like, holy cow, there's a much bigger issue here than the little one that I was struggling with internally. Uh, somebody ought to do something about this. So um, I asked Dr. Canfield to come to Chicago. Uh, as well as another fellow by the name of Don Eberly, who coincidentally was the founder of the National Fatherhood Initiative. Ken, Dr. Canfield, had founded the National Center for Fathering. And I put together another group of people to speak at what we called a community leaders briefing in February of 1997. Literally, the anniversary of that event is coming up this this week. And it's um, when I look back on it, 120 people showed up. Uh, not to hear me speak, I was just a young dad and just a young business person for that matter. I don't even think they came to hear Dr. Canfield and Don Eberly come to speak. Um, uh, if I was totally transparent, the reason that most of those 120 people were there was to hear Mike Singletary, right? Get a picture with Mike Singletary, get an autograph with Mike Singletary. And the reason I know that 100% for sure is because they brought Bears jerseys, Mike Singletary Bears jerseys. They brought football. Yep. I'm like, oh my God, if the media wants to spin this in the wrong way, this is a total disaster. But they didn't, right? They told the story from the fact that this is a really, really large societal issue. It gets talked about every day, every day in every community as the breakdown of the family, single parent families, um, welfare moms, single head of household families. And what we're not doing is not taking a step back and saying, well, how do these families get to be single families, right? And it has a lot to do with men not fulfilling their responsibility to their children, being there financially is what the state cares about, being there physically, which is really important to have a physical presence by a father or father figure, being there emotionally, which, let me just say, that that's one of my weaknesses. And um, 
being there spiritually, right? So that's the quadrant I talk about, being there financially, physically, emotionally, and spiritually for kids. Yeah, I think a lot of us, will check off that financial box, but the rest of it's just, it's just exhausting. I think that's really what it boils down to sometimes, David. Yeah, well, um, what you're referring to is uh, the state is focused on men meeting their financial obligation. Every one of the states has something called the Division of Child Support Enforcement, right? It's going after what we used to call deadbeat dads to make sure that they fulfill their financial obligation. And I get it. It's politically popular to go after men who are not meeting their financial obligation. You're never going to see them at a rally, right? You're never going to get thousands or tens of thousands of men who aren't paying their child support to all show up and, you know, say, you know, we're the victims, right? Right, right. So it's politically popular to go after these guys. So that's the expectation, the state's expectation. That's what's expected of men on sort of a uh, overall basis. But we're missing the point, right? That's what I refer to as the quarter truth. It's not even a half truth, right? It's just a quarter of what men should be doing. They need to make their financial obligations as best they can. And, you know, I feel sorry for the dads that are unemployed and, you know, unable to fulfill their financial commitment. But ironically, they're the ones that have the time, right? And what we're doing is that we're making it harder for them to be engaged with their family if they're not fulfilling their financial obligations. So, and again, addition to being there financially, you need to be there physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And anything that we're doing that prevents dad from fulfilling all four of those uh, obligations, I think, is just a step backwards. And, you know, just to, to reinforce the point that this cuts across race and, and, and ethnicity, 72% of all African-American children are born without a father, 41% of Latino kids, 32% of white kids. So that's one-third of white kids. And by the way, in absolute numbers, there are two times more white kids in father-absent homes than African-American kids. It's all just way too high, David, and, and, and it just, you know, it's, it's almost something you would think the Centers for Disease Control would want to study, given some of the statistics you rattled off, because they're just, they're, they're, they're just astounding. Well, um, it is of epic proportion, right, that uh, we've let uh, society um, delve down to the point that it has. And in reality, you know, kids from father-absent homes are 70-plus percent uh, more likely to drop out of high school. Seventy-five percent of kids that are incarcerated came from father-absent homes. Some 80 percent of kids uh, who end up in jail, you know, came up from a father-absent home as well. So... It's, uh, it's a bit overwhelming, and I think most people are like, well, where do I start? What can we do, right? And, uh, well, the first thing you can do is, you know, if you're a father, you know, be engaged with, you know, your own children, right? Um, even if you don't live with them, right? Really try to sort of um, uh, re-engage, I should say. Yep. And, um, you know, if uh, you're a stepfather or a grandfather or just a father figure and you know that there's children growing up without their biological dad, you know, what role can you play more so as a mentor? And, um, you know, for women in society, you know, um, they really need, and I'm not saying anything against single moms. Again, my mom was a single mom. I have a lot of respect for single moms and the heroic uh, things that they're doing on a daily basis to protect their young sons and daughters and raise them as best they can. But one of the things I've witnessed is that women think they can do it all themselves, right? And what they really need to do is be thinking about those positive adults male role models in their children's lives, right? So that they see what it's like to be a man, right? 
And whether it's raising a young daughter or a young boy, um, it's really important that they see these positive adult male role models. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk to David about the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative, 21st Century Dads, and some of the remarkable some of the remarkable writing that's coming from people in essay contests about uh, their fathers or the lack thereof. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Fathers and Sons, Fathers and Daughters. And by the way, this is a theme we hit on in some of our prison series. And by the way, when we talked to Judge Bobby Francis those few times we did, what was the story? What did Bobby tell us? Whether it was the boys in prison or the girls in prisons, nine out of ten of them, it was the absence of a father in a home. Again, when we come back, David Hirsch, his story, the story of the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative and 21st Century Dads here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with David Hirsch. And David, I want to just go back a little bit now and talk about the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative and the day it started, and talk a little bit about this essay contest, because the demand, I mean, in, in, when you're selling stuff in America, in America, what you're always looking for is to touch upon a vein where the demand is so strong that you almost have to duck and get out of the way. And my goodness, you aren't you aren't selling anything here per se, but my goodness, I think you were you had to be shocked at the demand you touched. Yeah, well, it was pretty amazing. Uh, in February, we had that community leaders briefing that I made reference to. We told people one of the three things we're going to do is this essay contest, an idea that we had gleaned from Minneapolis and Kansas City, uh, both those uh, towns that partnered with the local baseball team to do something on Father's Day, and the idea was to get kids in the schools, public and private schools writing about their dads and father figures. So we partnered with the um, State Board of Education, the Chicago Public Schools, and the Archdiocese of Chicago Catholic Education, and each of the superintendents of those three uh, organizations sent out a letter encouraging their um, teachers to get their students behind participating in what was known publicly as the, in the first year it was called the Chicago Tribune Illinois Fatherhood Essay Contest. And uh, in the very first year, we had over 30,000 kids write essays about their uh, dads and father figures. In fact, the response was so overwhelming, we decided to recruit 400 uh, volunteers to help evaluate those essays. The essays uh, were so poignant that we decided that it would be too bad if only 
those 400 volunteers had a chance to read the essays, so we had this brilliant idea that we would reprint some of the essays in the form of an essay booklet that came out in May, just three months after we had the community leaders briefing. One of those uh, essay booklets found its way to Harpo Studios, and um, one of the producers there said, oh, we'd love to have these particular seven out of the 24 kids in the essay booklet, you know, do a special taping before Father's Day. That was in June of 1997. So from start to finish, that four-month period of time was, like you said, it was touching a vein. And uh, it was a palpable experience. Well, let's play a clip of you reading some letters from your book, What My Father Means to Me, of student essays from that very first year of your fatherhood essay contest in Illinois. As you're listening, imagine you're one of the fathers whose child has written this essay about you. The first is Brittany, sixth grade. I know that I can always count on him to be there for me. He isn't even my father. He's my stepfather, Bill. Thanks to Bill, I know what having a father feels like. Sadly, I know that there are children who will never feel Never experienced this feeling. The second is um, Donna in 11th grade. For years, I've been a foster child. I've never known the love a father and a daughter share. There was no one there to help me with school. There was no one there to help me at all. As a child, I had no one to look up to. I had no one to call dad. I have a dad now. He took in a girl who had nowhere to go. Not only was she a stranger, she was a stranger with a past. She was me. He has stood with me through moments of hell. He gave a girl on the brink of death a chance to experience life. I call him dad. That's very powerful. And and how did this what did this do to you emotionally, David? I mean, did you did you know that this needed to be a bigger part of your life? And by the way, this is now a, a further pull away from you and your family as well. Ironically. Yeah, well, um, I didn't set out to found a not-for-profit organization, although I had served on some boards and had been very charitable in my past. Um, so it just evolved, right? One thing led to the next, and all of a sudden we you know, collected all these essays. You know, kids are you know, um, involved. We've got hundreds of volunteers. Um, the school environment you know, supported the organization very well. So the uh, organization's been doing this essay contest for now, this will be the 20th year. We've collected well over 400,000 essays. There's three annual celebrations, one in May for the 156 essayists, 12 per grade, K through 12. And then we narrow it down uh, each June to 12 dads, three dads, three stepdads, three granddads, and three father figures. And we have an annual fatherhood dinner celebration. It's always a very nice affair, and we usually have one, two, or three honorary dads prominent people in the community, and uh, there's a third celebration. The first is for the SAS, the second is for the dads, the third is for the volunteers, mostly educators, who are embracing this important issue about fathers' involvement. And then um, well, what uh, I've experienced, uh, you know, year after year, this kept growing. It went from 30,000, 40,000, 72,000 essays, um, is that it sort of took on a life of its own. And uh, a few years into it, my wife would say, uh, only the way uh, a wife and a husband communicate, she would say, this is a quote, hey, Mr. Fatherhood, I think you need to spend some time with your own kids, not <laughs> to have everybody else's kids. Right, right. And that was, 
her way of getting my attention in, you know, a pretty direct way of reminding me that, hey, you know, we have a large family. We have five kids. There's a need there, right? And I shouldn't be allocating all this non-work time that I do um, outside of our own family. So it was a really important way for me to be balanced. Indeed, and, uh, and, and wives play a central part in keeping us balanced, and if we're smart, we listen. I want to play one more clip of a student from a more recent year, David, reading their fatherhood essay. It's from Dakota Hammerquist, a seventh grader who was one of the 12 winners of the 2016 contest. Let's take a listen. My father means so much to me, but I am not writing about him now. I'm writing about someone who is like another father to me in my life. I know this person will always be there for me until he passes. I'm writing about my grandfather, Bob. Bob, my grandpa, is my other father. He is not always right in the head because he has Alzheimer's, but he is always there for me. Bob is funny, kind, and even though sometimes he doesn't know what he is doing or saying, he is always a gentleman and holds doors open for me. Even though Bob doesn't remember much, we always sing old songs together. He knows all of the lyrics to every Elvis song, too. The topic makes me cry because of my love for him and how I am very grateful to have him. I truly wish he could live forever. I know that one day, Bob will pass and be in a better place where he is not hurting, but I can't even imagine living without him. Bob is a big part of my world. Over time, the disease is slowly killing him and his brain. I praise him for being so brave and loving through this tough experience that he is going through. I truly love and respect Bob for his choices and actions. Bob is amazing. He shows up to everything I do. He even comes to my volleyball and softball games. Bob is there to hold me when I cry, to hug me when I'm excited, and he is there for me through everything that happens to me. Bob is too amazing to even explain. Bob, my father, is everything I could ask for in a man. He cares about everyone, too. Bob is the father figure I wrote about. Bob is the most amazing person I could ever ask for. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Hirsch. By the way, it's not just sons who are affected by a good father. As you can hear clearly, a father figure in this particular case, this young lady deeply moved. And we can only wish as dads or mentors that that's some young lady writing about us. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our final segment of the hour, David Hirsch, founder of the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative, 21st Century Dads, and the author of a book with the same title.
is Our American Stories, and we love to tell great stories about everything here. Music, sports, love, death, business, American history. We try to make it interesting. We do, we think. Hope you think so, too. One of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and with each other around the world. And that brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications and a modern Renaissance man. Carl has authored 11 books, including two based on his time in Iraq, a storytelling cookbook, and even a graphic novel published by Marvel Comics. But of course, we know him best by his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And here's a story from that great collection. Take it away, Carl. Last week, I looked at some of America's greatest cultural treasures, the homes of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, which every year host millions of visitors anxious to understand our founding fathers and their principles more deeply. Many people assume that these American shrines must be national parks. Actually, all three are owned, open to the public, and 100% funded by private philanthropy, and all of them are thriving. Today, I'm going to jump forward across almost 100 years of American history to tell you about another special site that is being made available to the public in fascinating ways, thanks entirely to donors and volunteers. Not many people know that for a quarter of his presidency, Abraham Lincoln didn't live in the White House. Instead, he and his family spent about one out of every four days and nights in a humble little cottage up in the northern part of Washington, D.C., which at that time was mostly a rural area. Why did they retreat to this leafy haven? Many reasons. First, the White House had no fence around it at that time, and anyone could just walk right in. Plenty of people did. And Lincoln was such a softy, he found it almost impossible to ignore the citizens who begged him to make inquiries about relatives missing in battle, or asked that a friend be appointed as a local postmaster, or pressed him for some other favor. The president was badgered from dawn to dusk and had a hard time getting rest. Abraham Lincoln relaxed by devouring Shakespeare, poetry, or the Bible. But in the bedlam of the White House, it was tough sticking to a book, there were always cables coming in, aides seeking his ear, and letters to be written. In addition, his heart was broken. He and Mrs. Lincoln lost their 11-year-old son, Willie, to typhoid fever partway through their presidency. This wrenched them both dreadfully, and walking through the rooms where their son had played and lain ill and finally died was horribly painful. So the Lincolns started escaping to the country cottage four miles from the White House. Sited on a protected military facility, it was quiet, green, and peaceful. It has a broad back porch facing a lawn, and that's where President Lincoln did much of his reading, as well as some rather martial checker playing. My colleague Madeline Fry recently interviewed museum associate Joan Cummins at the Lincoln Cottage. Let's listen in. This lawn here in front of us uh, was, when Lincoln was here, was the encampment of a group of soldiers from Pennsylvania who were the presidential guard detail, Company K. Um, and they were sort of camped in tents here on the lawn. 
were very friendly with Lincoln and his family, though. Um, mm-hmm. Lincoln's littlest son, Tad, was about nine when the family first came up here, and the soldiers gave Tad his own uniform. They gave him the rank of third lieutenant, which is not oh. real, <laughs> as far as I know. Uh-huh. Um, and then one soldier also wrote home to his mom that he had been invited up here onto the porch to play checkers with Tad and Lincoln, and that he oh. had lost spectacularly (laughs) to the president (laughs) that's great um so they were very much a part of the family's life because they were living in their backyard another attraction of the cottage was that it was situated on the third highest point of land in washington and thus enjoys breezes even during the city's stifling summers let's go back inside we'll go into the room on the right first up okay i love this little thing yeah, these are called gym doors, um, and the whole point of this is, like, the breeze, you can actually feel it right now, right? The breeze mm-hmm. comes up over the hill, and when you open it up like this, the breeze comes through the house as well. That's kind of why it was more comfortable here in the summer than at the White House. This wasn't just a spot for refreshing the presidential soul. Abraham Lincoln made some of his most momentous decisions in this house including formulating the Emancipation Proclamation within its walls. This is the room where Lincoln came up with the Emancipation Proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation freed over four million people. The Lincolns worked and played and recovered in this personal oasis day after day. One historian described the cottage as, quote, the only place we are certain Lincoln was happy during his presidency. Lincoln's visits to the property began just days after his inauguration, and he and his family slept in the cottage on the night before he was killed. Despite all of this remarkable history, the Lincoln Cottage was for decades a forgotten and physically neglected piece of Americana. It wasn't until a group of private donors came along to restore the structure and open it to the public that its history became accessible. A private nonprofit, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, gathered donations to restore the building and interpret it for visitors. Real estate developer and active philanthropist Robert Smith put up more than $7 million of the $15 million that it cost to restore the place. United Technologies Corporation provided $1 million and technical expertise to help create the nearby visitor center. Matthew and Ellen Simmons, the group Save America's Treasures, and many other individuals and foundations also contributed. Lincoln's Cottage opened for fascinating public tours starting in 2008. The nonprofit's overseers have created a super cutting-edge presentation style. Rather than the conventional approach of furnishing the house with period antiques, They've emptied every room to dramatic bare walls and floors, and they use electronic images and recordings to bring to life the ideas and principles of the history makers who glided through this home. It's bold and it's brave, and that's totally because it's privately funded. Museum director Aaron Mast explained to us that being a nonprofit rather than a government agency makes it possible for them to be much more daring. So because you're receiving just private donations, you can say this is this idea that we have and we're going to do it. Yep, pretty much. In in a lot of ways, we've seen and we've had colleagues in the field say to us, we couldn't do what you were doing. And I think it's because it's, it's a lot harder to go outside of the standard model if you are within a bureaucratic system. And we have removed ourselves from that type of situation 
and that allows us to be more nimble, more innovative, and push the envelope a little more. So if you're looking for an offbeat but really rich destination to visit next time you're in D.C., look up the Lincoln Cottage and make a donation. Though the property has been declared a national monument, it still covers 100% of its operating costs through private giving. And as always, a great story. i got to tell you, I know a lot about Lincoln. I did not know that story, and I did not know the Lincoln Cottage was in D.C., and I lived there for five years. And when I go back, I want to check it out. And it is fascinating. The old White House is not the new White House. And there were actually cases where there were brawls in front of the White House. It was just, it was a different time. And thanks, as always, to the folks at the Philanthropy Roundtable for our sweet charity series. And always thanks to Carl Zinsmeister for digging these chestnuts up. It's terrific storytelling and the kind we do here every day on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. This is Our American Stories and our final segment with David Hirsch. He's a private wealth manager at UBS by day, but he's also the founder of the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative, 21st Century Dads, and the author of a book with the same title. And David, thanks for staying with us for the hour. Thank you. You bet. I wanted to now dig into the present. Before I do that, what can folks do to start a fatherhood essay contest in their schools? Uh, well, it'd be really easy. If somebody wants to contact me, I'm happy to sort of lay all the cards on the table, share whatever information we have, and make it as easy as possible. And how can they do that? How can they reach you? Well, they could send me an email. That would probably be the easiest thing. At David at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. Great. And we'll post that up on our website as well, David, and we'll continue to hit that uh, through the year as we grow as a show and grow around the nation. And let's talk about now uh, some of the things you've been up to and talk about 21st century dads. And what do you mean by a 21st century dad compared to what? The 20th century dad, the 19th century dad? Because, my goodness, there's a lot more on our plate. No disrespect to the 19th and 20th century dads uh, than ever before. Yeah, well, I will just say in one sentence that being a dad in the 21st century is different than in the past. More is expected of dads. And that's a good thing. It is. It is. In fact, I, I, I joke often with buddies because we look at our duties and even our dads forget their dads. I mean, they just basically came in and, and provided and that was it. And everybody sort of served them and they went off and did their thing. And I'm generalizing here, but now much more is required. And by the way, I think we get a lot more out of it as well, David. Absolutely. Right. And so instead of delegating all the tasks to raising our kids um, to our wives or the mother of the children, 
um, it's a much richer experience, right? You're closer to your kids, right? You're involved with their lives. And uh, I don't know what my life would be like, you know, candidly, if all I did was, you know, be a supporter, right? You know, and just, you know, made money, right? Went off to work. And uh, it would be a, a much more shallow life. I think that's so true. You know, Jerry Seinfeld was on one of the last appearances of Larry King. And Larry King had said something to the effect of, so what's it like to be an old father, you know, and an and, and older father? And, and Jerry's like, I wish I'd known about this before. I mean, I'm so close with my kids. I, I love being a dad. And I just didn't know it could provide so much joy. And I really think this is one of the, the messages that the society sends to young men. Marriage is a drag. It's a ball and chain Parenthood is, a, is dull. It's too much responsibility. Be free. Be free. And to what degree are we fighting these, these, I think, macro messages from society at large, David? Yeah, well, the uh, culture is breaking down, right? The uh, value of uh, family and marriage has gotten decimated. Um, going back to, I think it's 1970, the uh, Otto wedlock birth rate was something on the order of 11%. And today it's 41%. So I don't think we're going to get that genie back in the bottle. But I think that uh, what we need to do is focus on the fact that, you know, kids benefit when both parents are involved, which means how do we get the dads involved, both young boys and young girls. So uh, over the last uh, now 20 years, I've developed these friendships with other people around the country who have started fatherhood organizations. I'll just mention a couple, three of them. So out in Irvine, California, there's a program called Boot Camp for New Dads. Greg and Allison Bishop started this program some 25 years ago, and it's a program for soon-to-be first-time fathers to learn about what it's like to be a dad for the first time. So I, I jokingly refer to it as Lamaze for Men. And it's a wonderful program, very low you know, entry level, and it's just a great opportunity for men to learn about what it's like to be a dad, whether they had a dad in their own life or not. Uh, there's another program in Mesa, Arizona, called the Native American Fatherhood and Families Association, so they have programs on 200 of the 600 Indian reservations in North America, and they've provided over 20,000 dads with opportunities to learn a little bit more about what it's like to be a Native American father in this culture and this society. And then there's another program in Springdale, Arkansas. It's called Watchdogs and Dad. Excuse me, Dogs stands for Dads of Great uh, Dads of Great Students, and. Um, it's an opportunity for men to volunteer in the school uh, once a year, a couple times a year. And uh, I was a watchdog for 10 years while my kids were younger. It's a wonderful program that allows men who are willing to take a day off of work or half a day off of work um, and be present in the school to be there for an extra sense of safety and then to do um, uh, some monitoring on the playground and the cafeteria. I remember doing flashcards and reading to the youngest kids. And they don't see a lot of men in the school environment other than a janitor. Occasionally there's a teacher, sometimes a principal is a, a male. And uh, these programs and others like them are what we're trying to do with the 21st Century Dads Foundation is raise awareness, resources for these uh, fatherhood programs. And um, anybody can get involved in any one of the communities around the country. And it's such a great point. Every time I go into my daughter daughter's school and she's 11 years old, David, and she's... Uh, in the sixth grade, uh, I see almost no man. I mean, all the teachers are women. Every single one of her teachers has been a woman. She's never had a male teacher. And I go in there, and it's, it's interesting to see particularly how the boys react, but even how the girls do. It's a great idea to take more than just some lunch in, 
but to really be a part of those schools, I think that's something that just from our conversation, I'll be taking to our superintendent shortly because I'd love to lead that charge. I know a guy, I know a lot of guys who'd love just a little direction and then would take it. Let's talk about this special fathers project, David. What's that about, and what, it, what, it, what does the word special fathers mean? So in the name of the 21st Century Dads Foundation, uh, we've been doing two or three things. The first uh, two big things we did were uh, cross-country bicycle rides, one from Santa Monica to Chicago, 21 days, 2,300-plus miles. This past summer it was Boston to Chicago, only 1,400 miles in 21 days. And then the uh, rights to the book, The uh, 21st Century Dads, The Father's Journey to Break the Cycle of Father Absence, um, all the proceeds from the book go back to the charity, right? I have a job. I can support my family. I'm not really an author, um, but I'd like to see the book do well uh, so it'll support the work that we're doing. And one of those projects is the Special Fathers Network. So simply stated, the Special Fathers Network is your one-on-one support community, right, for dads who have experience raising a child with special needs, being mentors to those young dads who are just finding out that they have a child with special needs. So the idea behind this plea is, you know, if um, I'm a dad and I'm raising a, raising a child with Downs, and I've got, you know, in my case, 20 or 27 years of experience being a dad, you know, I can share some of my experiences with a young dad who is a new Downs dad and try to take some of the mystery out of what it's like to raise a child with special needs. And uh, one of the motivations for doing this is that the incidence of divorce is very high in our society. It's estimated to be about 50%. Well, in special needs families, it's between 70 and 80%, right? The trauma of having a child with a special need, the financial burden in some cases that goes along with that, it's just it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yep. It's tough. And and what's interesting here, David, it looks like you're harnessing much of what we get in, in, in this highly technical economy, which is crowdsourcing, sharing of information, pooling of information, because in the end, knowledge is power, and it's never been easier to connect like-minded people or people with similar problems together. Yeah, well, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I sometimes refer to men mentoring other men, being fathers, that is, um, as having like a GPS, right? I've been mentored so many times in my life, and specifically not somebody schooling me on how to be a better dad, but rather just by example and conversation. So I'll just mention one of these fellows. Peter Spokes is his name. Um, he was the president of YoPlay, part of General Foods in Minneapolis, quit his corporate job, went to Kansas City to become the president of the National Center for Fathering, worked with Dr. Canfield, who we spoke about earlier. Well, Peter moved his young family of six children with his wife down to Kansas City, and we, we struck up this friendship starting in 1997 when I learned about you know, the issue of father absence in society. And for about a dozen years, we would have conversations, two, three, four of these conversations a year, and it would always start about, well, what's going on with each of our kids' lives? And because his kids were all five to eight years older than mine, I was the beneficiary of those conversations. He would just be explaining to me when my kids were in high school what his kids in college and beyond were doing and, you know, these different stages of their life. So I learned vicariously through um, his telling stories about his own family about what to do in certain situations. And that's what we're trying to do is empower dads who are willing to share their stories and share their experiences with younger dads, right? So I dedicated a chapter of my book, um, to Peter, um, and it's entitled The Power of Spokes. So it's a play on the spokes of a bicycle tire and 
his last name. And uh, sadly, uh, Peter died about six years ago of leukemia. And uh, it was at his funeral uh, that I realized that um, while we had a lot in common, we're fathers to six and five kids respectively, uh, we're sort of corporate guys, right? We talk the same language, we can identify, have this very strong passion for not only being dads ourselves, but advocating for father involvement. Um, those are the things we had in common. But it wasn't until I was at his funeral and heard two of his six children eulogize him that realized I didn't have a spiritual relationship with my kids. Even though we've raised our kids as Catholics, mostly because of my wife's credit, um, I needed to do something about that. So it was this light bulb that clicks on right at his funeral that I couldn't stop thinking about that I needed to still I needed to fill the spiritual void in my life because I didn't have a close relationship on a spiritual level with my kids. I wasn't a spiritual leader to them, and I wanted to do something about it. Well, even in death, your mentor was teaching you. And, David, that's what we can always do as fathers and as mentors and as father figures. David Hirsch, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. This is Lee Habib, David Hirsch, the founder of the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative, 21st Century Dads, and the author of a book, with the same title, this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to see and hear all that we do.